Hello, hello again. Welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm Nurse Mo, and as always, super excited to be here studying with you today. We are on episode 208, and the topic today is mannitol. Now, before we get into that, let's take a quick moment for our listener shout out to my San fam, because I appreciate you guys so, so much. So I love sharing these with you every week. And this one is from Lindsay, who emailed me to say, I genuinely think of you as my lead teacher in my nursing education so far. You are really excellent at what you do. And I know everyone lets you know, but you're just so appreciated by all of us. And I shout out your podcast to all of my peers in school every chance I get. Lindsay, thank you so much for sharing the podcast with your classmates. I love that you are so enthusiastic and getting so much out of it. And I really hope that it continues to help you and you continue to thrive in nursing school. Okay, let's talk about mannitol. So mannitol is a common medication that you are very likely to see on exams, in clinicals, maybe even in your sim lab. Definitely very real chance it'll be on your NCLEX. And it is a medication that requires very, very careful administration, very careful assessment and follow-up. So you're most likely going to see this in the critical care environment and the emergency department. So we will be going through mannitol using the straight-A nursing drugs framework, and that's D-R-R-U-G-S. There are two R's. So the first letter is a D, and that's for drug class. So mannitol is a diuretic. And as you recall, diuretics work on the kidney to remove excess water from the body, right? So you probably know that as a general idea about diuretics. Even if you're not a nursing student, you've probably heard of water pills. That's what we're talking about here, a medication that causes you to lose water. So mannitol is classified very specifically as an osmotic diuretic. And essentially what it is, is it's a sugar that is administered intravenously to raise serum osmolality. And this has the effect of pulling water from the intracellular space, bringing it into that intravascular space for rapid excretion by the kidneys. Now, just because mannitol is a sugar, it does not mean that it raises blood glucose levels like the way you would assume from dextrose or glucose. It is only mildly metabolized by the body, and it is excreted quickly by the kidney. So it causes a pretty rapid diuresis. So the next letter in the framework is R, and that's for routes of administration. Some medications have one route and some have a bunch. Mannitol is essentially a one route medication, though you may see it used in a secondary way, which we'll talk about in just a bit. So the main route of administration for mannitol is intravenous, and it will come in various strengths of 5%, 10%, 15%. 20 and 25%. Now, note that that 5% mannitol is also sometimes used as an irrigation fluid for specific types of surgeries, mainly transurethral prostate surgery. And I'll talk about this more in a bit when we get into the uses of mannitol. But just so you know, in general, you're giving mannitol IV. 
So the next letter is another R, and that stands for regular dose range. Now, I'm not one of those that thinks you need to memorize the exact doses for every single drug, because that's going to get absolutely overwhelming. Once you're practicing and working in the same environment, you're going to find pretty quickly that there's a collection of commonly used medications, and you'll get super used to those, and you'll know those doses like the back of your hand. In general, for exams, for things like that, knowing the regular dose range is just a way to kind of clue in if there's something wildly out of whack. Like I always use the example of fentanyl. Knowing that the regular dose range, like a regular dose of fentanyl, 50 micrograms. That's a pretty regular dose. But if you saw 50 milligrams, I would hope alarm bells would go off. So that's what I mean by just knowing the regular dose range. If you're in clinical, even if you're in sim lab, take that moment to look up the medication. Always know what it should be, but I'm not saying waste a ton of time memorizing it. Know that you can always have those resources available to look things up. So the regular dose range, according to Davis Drug Guide, has a range for mannitol in adults of 0.25 to 2 grams per kilogram. Okay, so not a very huge dose range, 0.25 to 2 grams per kilogram. And that range will vary based on how it's used. In children, the dose range is 1 to 2 grams per kilogram. Okay, there you go. Now, let's talk about the uses of mannitol with our next letter, which is U. So intravenous mannitol has two main uses, to decrease intracranial pressure and to decrease intraocular pressure. Of those two, I've only ever used it to decrease intracranial pressure. So that's probably what you're going to be seeing on exams and in clinical, in your sim lab, etc., it can also be used to flush the kidneys of harmful substances. So let's say that someone has ingested a toxin. Maybe they use mannitol to quickly flush the kidneys. It can also be used to improve blood pressure during dialysis and promote diuresis in the early stages of acute renal failure. So let's talk briefly about each one of these. So again, that main one is to decrease intracranial pressure. So mannitol increases serum osmolality, and that's going to pull water from those fluid overloaded cells. So intracranial pressure, cerebral edema, we're going to pull that water out of those fluid overloaded cells of the brain and into the intravascular space for excretion by the kidneys. Now, the effects of mannitol are going to take effect pretty quickly, about five to 10 minutes after it's given, and last about up to six hours. So then that probably makes you think, I wonder how often we give mannitol. Usually the orders will be for about every six hours as a PRN dose. Okay, and we'll talk about the monitoring parameters around that. But it's typically, if it's not ordered PRN, it will be ordered every six hours but have hold parameters. So we'll talk about that as well. So again, to decrease intracranial pressure, let's say the patient had brain surgery or a head trauma, and now there's swelling in the brain from that trauma, mannitol is going to increase serum osmolality, pull water, 
from the brain cells, basically, bring it into the intravascular space, reducing that cerebral edema and reducing that intracranial pressure. And then that water excreted by the kidneys. It's going to take effect pretty quickly, five to 10 minutes, and last up to six hours. And then it's also used to decrease intraocular pressure, so like with glaucoma. So mannitol will draw water from the vitreous humor of the eye and pull that into the intravascular space for excretion by the kidneys. And then with less water, less fluid in that vitreous humor, that intraocular pressure decreases. You could often see this used prior to ophthalmological surgical procedures, and again, in glaucoma. Again, the effects are quick within five to 10 minutes and last about six hours. And then what about using it to flush the kidneys when there's toxic substances present? So when we have toxic substances or materials like, let's say, rhabdomyolysis, where the kidneys are getting bombarded with hemoglobin and myoglobin, that's very, very damaging to the kidney. So you could see mannitol given to flush that through the kidney. And then what about during dialysis. So you may see mannitol given during dialysis. So many patients who are undergoing dialysis become hypotensive or experience dialysis equilibrium syndrome. And mannitol, again, is going to raise that serum osmolality and can help prevent these conditions from occurring. And I'm pretty sure Each of these things I've mentioned so far would be worthy of an entire episode all on their own, so I'm just hitting on the high points here for you. And then what about acute renal failure? You could possibly see mannitol used in this condition, acute renal failure, to prevent or decrease the severity of the oliguric phase. Remember, that oliguric phase means there's not much urine happening. And when there's not much urine happening, we have a high risk for fluid overload. Note that this is not a super common use, and the reason why is because mannitol can injure the tubules of the kidney and lead to acute tubular necrosis, but it could be done if maybe nothing else is available or nothing else seems to be working. And then, like I mentioned earlier, irrigation. So specifically transurethroprostate surgery, there may be a few other surgeries. This is the one that was mentioned the most often as I was doing my research. And depending on the type of equipment used in the surgery, mannitol or a combination fluid with sorbitol and mannitol may be used as that irrigation fluid. So if you are Having a surgery for your prostate and the surgeon is using a monopolar electrosurgery device, they can't also use an electrolyte-containing fluid for irrigation like sodium chloride or lactated ringers. So in these cases, the surgeon has to choose a non-electrolyte solution for the irrigation. Now, the problem with this is that, let's say you know, like free water or sterile water. That's hypoosmolar. And with this particular surgery, this prostate surgery, fluid can easily get into systemic circulation and cause significant fluid-related complications like pulmonary edema and hyponatremia. So a mannitol-based solution helps reduce the incidence of these complications. Now, it's really important to note that advances in surgery, advances in new surgical equipment types, enable surgeons, for the most part, to be able to use an electrolyte-containing solution for irrigation. But if you see mannitol used for this, 
that is most likely why. Now, some other uses of mannitol are to help diagnose asthma. So the mannitol challenge test is used to help diagnose asthma. And this test involves basically the patient undergoing a baseline spirometry test, doing the uh, mannitol challenge, and then doing repeated spirometry after that. They inhale powdered mannitol through an inhaler, and the substance, this mannitol, can cause bronchospasm. So that's what we're doing. We're challenging the bronchioles. Now, the key to this is that, A, it has to be done under the direct supervision of a healthcare provider, okay, because it can induce bronchospasm. You do need to have those bronchodilators and oxygen at the ready, maybe other rescue things, you know, dependent on what the MD orders. So it's not a test to be taken lightly. It's definitely done under direct supervision. And it is highly specific for asthma, but it's not highly sensitive for asthma. So what this means is if the test is negative, this does not rule out asthma, so it's not highly sensitive, but it is highly specific, meaning if you have a positive challenge test, it's very, very likely that the individual does have asthma. Okay, another use is as a component of cardiopulmonary bypass surgery. Mannitol is often used to prime that cardiopulmonary bypass circuit, and when I was a new grad in the ICU, one of the educational experiences that I got to do that was really, really cool was I got to observe a coronary artery bypass graft surgery. And I didn't really watch the surgery so much as I hung out with the perfusionist, the person whose job it is to man this cardiopulmonary bypass circuit. And it was absolutely fascinating. So if you ever get the opportunity to do that, it was really, really cool. Okay, another use of mannitol is to protect sharp objects. So mannitol can be applied to the tips of sharp objects, such as pacemaker wires, to protect them from being dulled as they are introduced into the vasculature. And then the mannitol will dissolve pretty quickly, exposing that sharp tip once the device gets to its target point for insertion. And it is also used as a food additive. I bet all this time you've been thinking, mannitol sounds really familiar. Where have I heard of this before? It is a naturally occurring substance and also used as a food additive. And the reason it's used as a food additive is it provides sweetness and it is poorly absorbed by the body, so poorly absorbed in the intestine. So the result is that it does not raise blood sugar in the same way other dietary sugars do, like eating table sugar. Mannitol also occurs naturally in various fruits and vegetables, including mushrooms, cauliflower, peas, and celery. So now let's move on to the G in the drugs framework, and this is for the guidelines for mannitol administration. And there are quite a few, so I've broken them up into safety, assessment, and labs. So when we're looking at safe guidelines for mannitol administration, now mannitol is considered hypertonic, it's hyperosmolar, it's going to have a higher tonicity. Anytime you're using that kind of solution, you have to be aware that it can cause extravasation injury. So you have to be very aware 
of how you are infusing it and where you are infusing it. And it is definitely recommended that at the very least, it go into a large peripheral vein, preferably a central line if the patient has one. Of course, if emergency treatment is necessary, you're not going to wait to get a central line placed most likely, but go through the largest peripheral vein that you can. Note that mannitol can crystallize in the bottle, and it's pretty obvious when it does. It's actually really pretty, Um, but note that you don't want to install that into the patient. Okay, so when the mannitol is exposed to cooler temperatures, this crystallization can occur. So you always want to be checking your solution very carefully before you give it to your patient. If you pull a bottle and it crystallizes or it has crystallized, the safest thing to do, honestly, is to get another bottle. Now, if for some reason that's not possible, the Davis Drug Guide recommends warming that bottle in hot water, shaking it vigorously to break up that precipitate, break up those crystals, and then allow it to cool to body temperature. If the crystals do not appear, then Davis Drug Guide suggests it's fine to give. Now, what I would probably do is I would triple check with the pharmacy to be sure. My first choice would be I'm going to go get another bottle. But if I can't do that, I'm calling the pharmacy just to double check. The reason you don't want to give crystals is they can cause pretty significant vascular damage and end organ damage. And that end organ damage can be severe. So Don't mess with crystals. Again, when in doubt, always consult your pharmacist or even the prescribing physician if you can. You also want to be sure to give mannitol through an inline filter. That filter is there to catch any precipitate, any crystals that maybe you can't see. We don't want them to enter systemic circulation. Another guideline for the safe administration of mannitol is to know your hold parameters. This will be a serum osmolality most likely. And the number that most orders are written to is hold or do not give if serum osmolality is above 320 milliosmoles. Now, again, this can vary. But if you see an order for mannitol, especially, you know, a recurring order, you know, more than once, a scheduled order or PRN every six hours order, whatever it is, and there's no hold parameter, no indicators for what labs to follow along with that, you need to get on the phone to the physician. Because for safe administration of mannitol, you do want to know what to follow and when to hold the medication. Now, mannitol is contraindicated in some cases, and those will be severe pulmonary edema, maybe even any pulmonary edema. If your patient's showing signs of pulmonary edema and the physician's prescribing mannitol, make sure he or she knows, hey, Bob's got pulmonary edema. Do we want to continue with this mannitol administration? They may say yes. They may say no. They may try something else. Active intracranial bleeding, significant hypovolemia would be another one. Others include heart failure, and we'll talk about why in just a bit, renal failure, renal insufficiency, and uncorrected electrolyte imbalances, because we're going to have some fluid shifts, some diuresis. The electrolytes can get out of whack because of the mannitol. We don't want to start with them already imbalanced. We would want to be correcting the electrolytes throughout all of this patient's treatment. Now, children with hyperemia should not be given mannitol as it can increase intracranial pressure. So usually we give mannitol to decrease intracranial pressure. In a child with hyperemia, 
We're not going to be giving that because it can actually increase intracranial pressure to fatal levels. We also want to be very careful when giving mannitol to patients who also take digoxin because mannitol, again, can cause some electrolyte imbalances. One of those is hypokalemia, and hypokalemia can increase the risk of digoxin toxicity. So again, you've got a patient who takes the digoxin. Just make sure the MD is aware of that because, you know, they're caring for a ton of patients. They might not have everybody's everything memorized in their mind when they prescribe mannitol. So if you know about it, just make sure that they know. Pharmacy would hopefully catch it too, but you know, we're all in this together. It takes a whole team sometimes. There's also an increased risk for renal failure if the patient is also taking other nephrotoxic drugs like aminoglycosides and other diuretics. There's also increased risk for neurotoxicity with aminoglycosides as well. And a great example of an aminoglycoside is gentamicin, pretty common one. Okay, so moving on to the next component of this guidelines area, we're going to talk a bit about the assessment. What are you assessing for a patient for whom you are giving mannitol? So your nursing assessments are definitely going to include monitoring that IV site very, very closely for signs of infiltration and extravasation. You'll be monitoring for signs of electrolyte imbalances because very, very common with mannitol administration. Definitely keeping a very close eye on urine output. Most of the time, these patients are in the critical care environment, and if they're getting mannitol for increased intracranial pressure, we're monitoring their eyes and nose very carefully. They most likely have an indwelling urinary catheter, like a Foley catheter. Um, if the patient's, you know, getting it maybe for that intraocular situation before ophthalm, op, I cannot say this word, ophthalmologic <laughs> surgery, they probably won't have a Foley catheter. It wouldn't be as common, but just know you do still want to monitor urine output on these patients. Um, the Davis Drug Guide said that if urine output is not at least 30 to 50 mils per hour after giving the mannitol, the patient will likely need reevaluation by the MD. My experience with mannitol is that it causes way more diuresis than that. But if you don't at least see that much, you need to let somebody know, hey, I gave the mannitol. He's not diuresing. Do we need to be doing something else? Make sure somebody knows. Monitor ICP if you are giving this for increased intracranial pressure. Now, ICP monitoring is a whole thing I could talk about for probably an hour. The very short version is that if the patient's getting ICP monitoring, they will have some kind of device, like a sensor. It'll be in the ventricle or in the parenchyma. Sometimes ICP is monitored with a lumbar situation, like a sensor in, the, in a lumbar drain instead. So just know that you will be going by the ICP a lot of times if you're giving the mannitol for increased intracranial pressure. And it will be written as a PRN order, most likely, like every six hours, you can give mannitol if the ICP gets above this range, provided that the labs are within check significantly looking at that serum osmolality. You also want to assess neurological status very closely. The desired outcome, of course, is for the patient to have an improvement in neurological status as that cerebral edema is reduced. Note that when mannitol is first given, it can cause a transient hyponatremia, which can affect neurological status. And then as water is excreted, they can have hypernatremia, and this can affect neurological status as well. So you just are assessing all of that, your patient's getting mannitol for ICP, 
are probably going to be getting hourly, maybe every two-hour neuro checks, most likely hourly or even more frequently. You also want to monitor cardiac function as electrolyte imbalances can cause dysrhythmias. And I mentioned hypokalemia a moment ago, probably the one that would be most likely to cause a cardiac dysrhythmia. And you also want to monitor hemodynamics. Fluid shifts, because we're quickly pulling water into the vascular space, this fluid shift can precipitate heart failure, while diuresis can cause hypovolemia. Both of these conditions can cause hemodynamic instability. And if your patient has received mannitol for that increased intraocular pressure, you want to monitor visual acuity and ocular pain. Hopefully, both improve with administration. And then the final component we'll talk about for the guidelines about mannitol are the labs. You definitely are going to have to be really on top of your game with drawing your labs at designated times, and especially if the mannitol is given repeatedly. So again, what I have seen, for the most part, I've worked in a neurotrauma ICU. I've worked in an ICU that took care of neuropatients. Normally, how the mannitol order would be written for us how our doctors wrote their orders is it would be a PRN order, an as-needed order, based off that ICP. But the order would say, check the serum osmol and probably also the serum sodium, potassium, and other things. But the most important would be get a serum osmol before you give the dose. So you would have to time that out very carefully, anticipating how long is it going to take lab to turn this around. I'm going to send it as a stat, a stat lab. So hopefully I get the result within an hour, hopefully less if possible, knowing that I've got a mannitol that I can give at 1800. I'd probably go in and draw that serum osmol you know, maybe 1700, 1715 or so, so that I can get that result back so that if I can give the mannitol, based off the serum osmolality level, I've got that result. I know I can give it at, you know, that time that it's available at 1800 if I need it, if the ICP is getting high. Other labs are serum sodium, serum potassium. For the most part, you'll be looking at these every four to six hours because you're probably giving the mannitol about that often, four to six hours-ish. It does last about six hours. But again, medication administration is going to be dictated by the physician. Serum small again, every four to six hours, always prior to each dose for the maximum amount of safety. So let's move on to the final component of the drugs framework, and that is S for side effects. So one of the most significant is, again, that heart failure that can be caused by rapid shifts of fluid into the intravascular space. So you definitely want to be watching their cardiac function. Another very significant adverse effect is worsening cerebral edema. But wait, aren't we giving this to decrease cerebral edema and decrease intracranial pressure? Yes, though we do generally give mannitol to decrease intracranial pressure, reduce cerebral edema, it can worsen it, especially if the vessels are damaged. And the vessels are damaged, you know, most likely when you've got an intracranial hemorrhage going on. So if your patient has an active intracranial hemorrhage, you may see that the mannitol is not given, is held, and the physician may choose other techniques for controlling cerebral edema, like maybe getting a craniotomy. Now, with repeated doses of mannitol, so 
giving it over and over again. And again, it should be spaced out by that six-ish hours. But with repeated doses of mannitol, it can actually leach into the blood-brain barrier a little bit, which would then have the opposite effect. Remember that water is going to follow that mannitol. So then it would be pulling water into the tissues of the brain worsening cerebral edema. So it's usually not given for extended periods of time. In the most part, you know, I worked in the ICU for a long time to curve a lot of patients on mannitol. I would say maybe a few days. You know, it's hard for me to say specifically because it has been so long, but my experience with cerebral edema is that as the brain has an injury of some kind, that edema kind of maxes, it kind of reaches its peak around day three, and then it slowly starts to subside. So that's generally um, how it goes. Now, don't take that to the bank. That's just my experience and what I saw. But again, mannitol is not something that's given long term. It's given for acute response to cerebral edema, intracranial pressure increases. Other CNS side effects to watch for when you're giving mannitol are confusion, lethargy, and headache. I don't think I've ever given mannitol to someone who was conscious because they were so sick and injured that they were unconscious. But, you know, maybe you're giving it for intraocular pressure. Maybe you're giving it for acute kidney injury. Or it's a patient undergoing dialysis who has disequilibrium syndrome. So lots of cases where you might give it to someone who is actually awake and you could tell if they're getting confused or lethargic or complaining of a headache. Another adverse effect is dehydration and worsening of existing dehydration due to water losses. The patient may also complain of thirst if they're awake and able to do so. And again, we have those electrolyte imbalances. The most common are hyponatremia, hypokalemia, and hypocalcemia. As the diuresis continues, do note that hypernatremia can result if the patient becomes dehydrated. So you're going to be watching electrolytes very closely, and it could be high and they could be low. And then hypersensitivity reactions to mannitol are possible, though not the most frequent adverse reactions. All are life-threatening if they do occur. These include dyspnea, hypotension, and anaphylaxis. So your quick summary for mannitol is that it is an osmotic diuretic that is used in cases of increased intracranial pressure to pull fluid out of the brain and into the vascular space where it is then excreted by the kidneys. The goal is decreased ICP and improved neurological function. You will monitor electrolytes and check serum osmolality routinely and before each dose. Manitol is given via an inline filter, and you must always check for crystals prior to administration. It is contraindicated in heart failure, pulmonary edema, and intracranial hemorrhage. Thank you so much for studying along with me for Manitol today. Next week, we're doing a really fun episode. I've been getting a lot of questions from nursing students who are about to graduate kind of about like that what's next factor. So I took some of the most common questions and are addressing them next week in a Q&A. See you then. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. <laughs>